just uh, listened to my last sermon or the sermon that I preached last night, you can really end up with a very legalistic way of understanding the gospel. Um, and it's very, it can be very dangerous. And that's why I think what I'll share with you um, for my last session with you um, right now is actually more important than what I've shared with you for the last three sessions. Um, and uh, I'm combining the, uh, the title of the third sermon, which is The Mother of All Sin, and uh, the last, which is by We Are Who We, are, who we Behold. We Are Who We Behold. So we're combining that, and I promise you I'm not going to go that long. And uh, if you have any questions, jot them, jot them down, and I'm willing to interact with you when I'm done. So um, it's actually 2.30, 2.45 right now. I'll aim for 3.20. Um, can't promise you, but I'll, I'll aim for that. So if you have any questions, uh, jot them down, and we'll have a time to interact. So... In our, in our last session, we talked about what character is. Character is the thoughts and feelings combined, and we determine whether it's a good character or, or not so good character by two things, the power of will and the power of self-control. Now, this, it's, the, the power of will and self-control and, and character is necessarily connected with, with temptation, because that's when we use the power of will when we use the power of temptation. And really what de the devil does is he tempts us to sin, right? Now, the title of my, my third presentation is The Mother of All Sin. If you were to guess what the mother of all sin was, what, what, do you, what would you say the mother of all sins are? The Bible actually says that there's a mother of all sins. I'm sorry? The Holy Spirit? The mother of all sin? Okay, how, how so? Explain. Oh, okay, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Oh, okay, okay. In that sense, okay, I understand what you mean now. Um, I heard somebody else. Pride, did you say? Okay, anyone else? What's the mother of all sin? Let's go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 15. We'll start from verse well, 13. James chapter 1, verse 13. It says here, Let nobody say... Oh, you're still looking. I'm sorry. James chapter 1 and verse 13. It says here, Let nobody say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Verse 15, then when desire has conceived or has given birth, it gives birth to what? To sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it brings forth what? It brings forth death. 
So according to James 1.15, what is the mother of all sin? Desire. It's desire. So it's like a root and a plant. So th there's this, this plant, and the root of that plant is desire. The word desire is very often translated in the New Testament as lust. Okay. In, other, in other chapters, it's translated as lust. So we can think of individual sins in our lives and say, okay, I have this sin. Let's take care of this sin. Oh, that sin. Let me take care of that sin. And then you realize you have that sin. Oh, let me go and take care of that sin. But James says, yes, we, in, in a sense, we should surrender our sins to God and sacrifice our sins to God. But even more important than that, we have to look at the root of the problem. We have to look at who the mother of all sins is and tackle the root problem, which is desire or lust. So what is desire or what is lust? Let's go to 1 John chapter 2. And verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. It says here, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what, for, what John is saying here, the love for the world and the love of God, they're mutually exclusive. You, you can have only one. You can't have one and the other. You either love God or either you love the world. So what is the love of the world? Verse 16, for all that is in the world. He doesn't say most of the things. This is what the world looks like in, in, in the biblical sense. It's three things. First of all, it's the lust or the desire of the flesh. Secondly, it's the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. For all that is in the world is not of the Father, but is of the world. So, so John is kind of categorizing sin into three things. It's firstly, the lust of the flesh. And secondly, the lust of the eyes. And thirdly, it's the pride of life. Every sin falls into that category. Every temptation falls into those three categories. Let's look at the first temptation that ever happened. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And starting from verse 4, Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, this is the first temptation that humanity has, has ever experienced. It says, Then the serpent said to the woman, to Eve, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, So when the woman saw... That the tree was, firstly, good for food. Secondly, that it was pleasant to the what? To the eyes. And a tree desirable to make one what? 
wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her, her husband with her, and he ate. So as, as Eve was being tempted, she was being tempted on three fronts. First of all, it looked good. It looked as a fruit that was good for food. It looked yummy. Never seen a food that looked so good. It was a temptation against the lust or the desire of the flesh. Secondly, it says that it looked good in the eyes. What does it say? Verse, um, uh, verse 6, it says that it was pleasant to the eyes. And thirdly, it, it looked like it could make you wise. And what did Satan say about being wise? He said that you can be so wise to the point of being like God. The pride of life. Satan saying, you could be like God. Look how delicious this is. Mmm, yummy. Look how beautiful this is. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let's go to the temptation of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3. We'll look at the temptation of Jesus and we'll really try to, to understand what those three things are. Matthew chapter 3. Sorry, Matthew chapter 4, and uh, verse 3. Let's start from verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You know, you see the same pattern with the Israelites. The Israelites came out of the water, the Red Sea. They enter into the wilderness. And, and Exodus chapter 15 says that God was tempting them, or God was testing them in the wilderness. And Jesus... He comes out of the water at the end of, of, of Matthew chapter 3. He's just been baptized out of the water. He enters into the wilderness to be tested or tempted by the devil. Right. And verse 2. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, why is that even a temptation? If I came to you when you were hungry and I gave you a stone, is that a temptation for you? Would you ever be tempted, oh, that looks so yummy? That's not a temptation for us. But for Jesus, it was. Why was it a temptation for Jesus then? Sorry, go ahead. Because he could do it. Now, earlier today, we saw Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, or if, or if you want to follow me, you have to do three things. First thing you have to do is, you have to deny yourself. And then you follow me. And when I was talking about that verse, I told you that Jesus never commands us to do something that he did not do for himself. And if Jesus were to say, deny yourself and follow me, does that mean that Jesus also denied himself? Did Jesus have to deny himself? Why? Jesus was, was kind. He was good. Was there, there was no sinful desire in his heart. Why did Jesus have to deny himself? How can Jesus say, follow me and deny yourself? 
Anyone? How does Jesus deny himself? He denied his supernatural abilities. Like you said and like he said, Jesus could have changed that bread, that, that stone into bread in an instant, just by the thought of it. He didn't even have to utter a word. Just by thinking it, he can make it into bread. When he looks at that stone, he can smell that, 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 that smell of bread that's coming out of the oven, so to speak. But what he does is he denies his supernatural ability and says, he says no to that bread that he sees in his very eyes. He's like, mm. He sees that stone and, and, and he's starting to salivate. He can smell that bread. Oh, it looks so good. But he has to deny himself. Now, if you think about the, the baptism of Jesus... Jesus, we, we usually think that, you know, because Jesus wasn't sinful, he didn't need to get baptized. But Jesus had to get baptized. Because it was a symbol of him that said, I am dying to self. I am dying to what I can do. And I'm dying to my own desires. And, and instead of following my own desires, what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow whatever my father tells me to do. That's, that's denying himself. If you look in John chapter 5, verse 19, it says, I do whatever the Father tells me to do. If, you ever, if you're ever in a restaurant and overhear a 30-year-old person tell his friend, when a friend asks, hey, do you want to go, go somewhere? And, and the friend says, you know what? Uh, let me talk with my dad. Whatever my dad tells me to do, I'll do it. You'll probably think that that person's a very, it's a weird person. You, you know, it's a, that, that's a problematic person. But that's what Jesus was like. In everything that he did, instead of relying on his own feelings or what he wanted to do or whatever it was, his first thing that he did was, Father, what do you want me to do? So in getting baptized, what Jesus was saying was, instead of, of, do, of, of using my own strength, I'm going to completely rely on the strength of my Father. Instead of making this stone into bread and using my ability to, to fulfill the lust of my flesh, I'm going to rely on the strength of God and believe that He can provide for me. I'm going to seek first the, the, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and I will believe that He will add all things to me. And Jesus denied Himself against the, flesh, the lust of the flesh. Let's go to the next temptation. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 5. It says, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The devil says, if you jump down from here, guess what? You're so special that God's going to send you angels. What's he appealing to? He's appealing to the pride of life. You're special enough. You're important enough. You're righteous enough. Of course God's going to do that. 
And if Jesus were to do that, if Jesus were to jump, I have no, no doubt in my mind that God would have sent angels and have protected him. And Jesus would be like, oh, look how, look how great I am. He could have done that. But he fights again the, the temptation of the pride of life and says, instead of, of lifting myself up and showing myself off to be the, 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 the most righteous, the most powerful, guess what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to deny myself. Thirdly, what does the devil do? Verse 8. And the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. And what does he do? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. The lust of the eyes. He shows him everything. How glorious the world was. And he says, I'll give this all to you. So what is lust? That is the sin, that is the mother of all sin. The desire that is the mother of sin is not necessarily desire in and of itself. Because we all have desires. Now, fleshly pleasure is not a bad thing. God gave us delicious food to eat. Looking at beautiful things is not a sin in and of itself. And God places his children sometimes in high positions. God placed Daniel, God placed Joseph in high positions. So going up the ladder is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. But what the problem, but when it actually becomes a problem is when you start desiring something against the will of God or against the word of God, that's when desire starts becoming a problem. Does that make sense? So if I want, so when I look at a, a, a beautiful, a delicious looking fruit and want that, that's not necessarily sin. But when I start looking at something that, that will give me pleasure in my flesh, and, it, and I desire that, and I know that that is not according to the will of God, that's what the lust of the flesh is. When I look at something and want to keep looking at something and I know that I shouldn't be looking at something, that's when it's the lust of the eyes. When I know that I shouldn't be climbing up the ladder or so on and so forth, or I know that, that I shouldn't be trying to lift up myself and I, I find myself doing that, that's when the pride of life kicks in. But here's the thing about faith. Let's go to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verse 5. Luke chapter 17 and verse 5. Luke 17, verse 5. Here it says, And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. That, that's what we all need. In order to, to be like Christ, we can't do that without faith. We can't be saved without faith. We, I mean, Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. So the disciples come to, to Jesus. You know, they, they've seen the great faith that Jesus has. And they, they're saying, Jesus, we want to have faith like you. Please increase our faith for us. And this is the answer that Jesus gives. Starting in verse 7, Jesus gives an example. And which of you, having a servant, 
plowing or plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I don't think so. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. This is a very weird example that Jesus gives. To the request, increase our faith. So, so imagine you're a servant, you, you've been working hard, hard all day, you come back home, and the master expects you to, to serve on the table, to, to wash his feet and, and to serve on the table, and after that, you're wanting to rest, but then he gives you more work to do, but at the end of the day, you, you receive no appreciation. And how is that servant feeling? The servant's feeling, we just did what we need to do. And Jesus says, that's the way we increase our faith. The spirit of prophecy talks about righteousness by faith in this way. What is righteousness by faith? She says, it is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust. In the work of God laying the glory of man in the dust. The servant that you see here, he, he doesn't feel deserved. He doesn't feel like he... He doesn't feel entitled to what he's receiving. When God is blessing him, he's not saying, oh, this is something that I deserve. He, he's just feeling like, if God gives me a thank you, but if I don't receive anything, I'll, I'll just do my duty. He laid the glory of man in the dust. Whatever the master desires me to do, I'll do. There are two people in the Bible that that Jesus said, this person has great faith. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. You know, if, I were, if it were me, and Jesus told me that he was coming to my house to, to heal my child, I would have said, thank you, Jesus. Let's run. Hop in my car. Let's go. But that's not what this man says. This was a centurion. He was a Roman centurion who was... And the Romans were the, the were was the, the the Rome was the country that was overseeing Israel at that time. They were under the invasion of Rome. The centurion could have come to Jesus and said, "Hey, hey, you, Jesus, I'm a centurion. You're now coming with me." But that's not what the centurion says. The centurion says to Jesus, "Jesus, I actually don't feel worthy that you come to my home." Just speak the word. Just say the word. And my servant will be healed. You don't have to come all the way to my home. He didn't feel entitled. 
He laid the glory of man in the dust. It was not about what he desired or, or, what, or, or lifting himself up. He says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy, Lord. I have servants under me, and if I say go, they go. If, if I say come, they come. And likewise, uh, I know I'm, I'm your servant, and I know that, that you have power over, over all the sickness and diseases. All you have to do is say the word, I'm laying my glory in the dust, Jesus. The other time when Jesus said that this person has great faith was to the Syrophoenician woman. She, she, she had a demon-possessed daughter, and she comes to Jesus, and she's crying out to Jesus, Jesus, help me! Help my daughter, Jesus! And Jesus says, you know what? I've come for the, 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 the Jews, not for the dogs. How would you respond? How would I respond? How dare you, Jesus? If a, I, know, I think most of us are Korean here. If a Japanese pastor came in and said, um, if, and said, you know, I've, I, I'm not here for the Korean dogs here. I've come here to serve the master Japanese race. That would be, that would be quite offensive. But this woman doesn't take offense of what Jesus says. And she says to Jesus, Jesus, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table. She didn't feel entitled of the blessing that Jesus was going to give to her. She, she doesn't say, how dare you, Jesus? No, 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 she doesn't do that. But Jesus, I know I'm nothing. If you compare me to a dog, that's fine, Jesus. And the Bible says Jesus was amazed at her faith. Whoa. This woman has great faith. He says the same thing to the centurion. This guy has great faith. That's the only two times that, that you see Jesus saying that this person has great faith. What they did is they laid the glory of man in the dust. And they said, Jesus, I'm not worthy. Whether you bless me or not, I'm not worthy to receive your blessing. But if you do, I'll be so grateful. It's not about what I desire in my life. Whatever you desire in my life, let that be the desire of my heart. Go to Romans chapter 1, and uh, we'll wrap up with, we'll just look at three more passages and we'll wrap up soon. Um, Romans chapter 1. And verse 16 and 17. So what is the power that actually transforms us? Romans chapter 1. And verse 16. Romans 1, 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it has the power of God to salvation. Did I read that right or no? No, I did it wrong. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is related to the power of God. Yes or no? No. He says the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And the live is the continual, it's, it's the present tense. 
It's not just that we're just justified by faith. Our sanctification happens by faith and faith alone. And if we are glorified and, and if we are, are blessed enough to, to enter into heaven, it's not because there's any merit that we can present to God and say, look how good I've been. No, we lay the glory of man in the dust and we say, we're just grateful for, for your salvation. So, so salvation is by faith from beginning to present to end. It's all by faith. Although we've been talking about development of character, the development of character does not give you merit to enter into salvation, to, to, into heaven. It's not about merits at all. All the glory goes to God. Because if you are able to develop character by the grace of God, all the merit goes to God and all the glory goes to God because it comes from the power of God. And what is the power of God? The power of God is His gospel. It says the gospel of Christ is the power of God. It's the power of God that transforms our life. So what is that gospel? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. It says here, For the message of the, what? Of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it has the power of God. Yes or no? No. It is the power of God. What is the power of God? It says, The message of the cross is is the power of God. If there is anything that transforms us, it is the message of the cross. It's not by, by, by coming up with your own power that, that we're, we're, we develop our characters. It's the message of Jesus Christ who is crucified that, tra that has the power to transform our lives. That's why he says in a, in a following verse, verse 24, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He refers to Christ who is crucified as the power of God that transforms us. So what is this all about? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And uh, we'll read uh, one more passage and then we'll finish after this. Second Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18, it says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord. Last night we talked about glory. And what does glory equate to? In most of scripture. The glory equates to character of God. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory or the character of the Lord, as we behold what happens. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. From a 
from a character that is Christ-like to even a greater resemblance of character of Christ, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You've probably heard the phrase, by beholding, we are changed. By beholding, we are changed. We get that from 2 Corinthians 3.18. As we behold the character of Christ, it says that we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. But what about the cross transforms us? Let's look at one more passage. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3 and 4. I'm sorry, we'll start from verse 2. How do we look to Jesus? How do we behold Jesus? It says, by beholding we're changed, then how do we behold Jesus? Or what do we behold of Jesus? Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. It says, looking unto Jesus, Hebrews 12 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Now Paul here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, he equates looking at Jesus... As considering Jesus who suffered for our sake. That's what looking at Jesus is. And it's by beholding Jesus, by looking at Jesus on the cross that we are transformed. Can we have a slide up, please? Um, I don't think that's it. Not my slide. Um, next slide, please. Next slide. Next. Next. Here we go. Desire of Ages, page 83, it says, It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the love of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. Next slide, please. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. This principle is something that changed my life. For the past few few months, actually, to be very honest with you, I've man, I've became a man of much tears, to, to be honest with you. And I wasn't like that, to be honest. Um, 2018 was the year that I cried the most um, after being a child, and um, it's so bad to the point. <laughs> you know those uh, the, the 10 volume um, Bible story books by, by Maxwell um, I read those two to my daughter and I 
I actually cry at about one of two of those stories. It's, it's like, and I, and I started wondering to myself, is there something wrong with my hormones? Am I, am I lacking testosterone or what's going on? And I realized the reason that I started really reacting to the word of God was at least once in a day, I tried to think about the cross and what that means for me. And whether it be the first thing in the morning or the last thing that I do at night, I try to think of the cross of Jesus Christ every single day. And as I've been doing that, that practice has, has really softened me to the Spirit of God. And it might be a really random story in the Bible. It's not like, and I'm not reading the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. It might be a really random healing story of Jesus. And I kid you not, like, I can't read for like 15 seconds because I'm about to burst out in tears. And my, my daughter's looking at me, what's going on? Like, like, this isn't really that sad. What's going on there? <laughs> but looking and beholding at the cross really started transforming. And I'm not saying that I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the person that's, that's farthest from, from, from perfection. And I'm not saying that I'm better than any of you. But beholding being the beauty of, of Jesus on the cross, there's really nothing like it. If there's anything that you take from this weekend, make it this. Put the cross of Jesus in the forefront of your minds. Every day. If you're about to get angry, think about the cross. If you're having a good time, think about the cross. When you get up in the morning, think about the cross. Before you get to bed at night, as you're, as you're praying, think about the cross. Let me look at one more slide. Um, next slide, please. Um, G.C. Bolton, December 1, 1895. It says, who can estimate the value of a soul? Go to Gethsemane and there watch with Jesus through those long hours of anguish when he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Look upon the Savior uplifted on the cross. Hear that despairing cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Look upon that wounded head, the pierced side, the marred feet. And if we go to the next slide, there's this crazy statement there. Remember that Christ risked all. Why is that crazy? It says, tempted like as we are, he staked even his own eternal existence upon the issue of the conflict. Now, when Jesus was being tempted, was it an actual temptation or was it a make-believe temptation? It was an actual temptation. Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted like as we are. In other words, when Jesus was being tempted, Je Jesus was actually being tempted. In other words, there was a possibility that Jesus could have sinned. Because it was a real temptation for him. When Jesus looked at that stone, the th thought crossed his mind, should I actually change this into bread? I'm famished. I've had, I haven't eaten anything in the last 40 days, and this looks really tasty. 
in an instant, I can change this into bread. It was a real temptation. But the Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is what? Is death. That means if Jesus had decided that he would commit sin, the Father was obligated to kill his son, Jesus Christ, an eternal death. When Jesus decided that he was coming to this earth, he was risking his eternal existence. And it was not like he would have just one temptation and it would be it. Throughout his entire life, Satan and, the, and, and his angels are bombarding Jesus with temptation after temptation after temptation. And Jesus knew that beforehand. Before coming into this world, he knew that he's jumping into a battlefield where missiles and bullets of temptation are going to be faced towards him. And Jesus says, I'll take that risk. There's a possibility that I might sin. There's a possibility that I might sin and die eternally. But all that, I'll take that risk. But the risk is greater than that. Because Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 says everything is held or consists in Jesus. That's why, that's why the book continues and says, Heaven itself was imperiled for our redemption. At the foot of the cross, remember, remembering that for one sinner, Jesus would have yielded up his life, we may estimate the value of a soul. If Jesus were to commit sin and die an eternal death, the entire world have, would have been in danger. Because in Jesus, everything consists. And it says that Jesus is the one that holds the world together. I'm holding these markers together. And if somebody were to destroy my hands, what happens to these markers? Jesus risked not only his own eternal existence for your salvation. Jesus risked the fate of the universe for your salvation. And if it was for just one person, he would have done that. That's the depth of the love of, love of the cross. If it was just for me, if it was just for you, one person, Jesus would have risked the entire universe for you and me. That's crazy. That's the value that he sees in you. What's the value of this water bottle? 50 cents. Anyone else? If you go to Costco, a bottle like this probably costs like $10. I mean, 10, 10 cents, I'm sorry. Um, thir at, at the airport on Thursday, I bought a water bottle like this for $3.33. At a gas station, this costs $1.29. Right. At Costco, it's 10, 10 cents. Now, if you were to be 
crossing through a desert and you haven't had a drink, a sip of water in three days and somebody offers you water for $100, would you take it for $100? Yeah, I would take it. So the value of this water bottle is not necessarily determined by how much it costs to produce this. The value of this water depends on how much the buyer is willing to pay for this. If somebody's willing to buy this for $100, the value of this water bottle can be $100. If I'm in the desert and buy it for $100, I wouldn't be thinking, oh man, I just wasted my $100. I'll be, think I'll be thankful for that I bought this water bottle. Why do I say that? Because the price that God was willing to pay for your life and mine was the eternal existence of Jesus Christ and the eternal existence of the universe, of the universe itself. That's the value that, that he sees in you and me, and that's how badly he wants you and me to be saved. For just one person. That's your value. Not because you have that innate value in and of yourself, but because Jesus was willing to pay that much of a price for you. That's the death of the love of the cross. And as I leave here, again, I just want to leave you with this one thought. If you forget everything that I've, that I've shared with you this weekend, that's okay. But keep the crucified Jesus Christ at the forefront of your mind. And as, we, as, our, as our mind dwells upon that beautiful sacrifice, that complete sacrifice for you and me, that crucified Jesus Christ is the one who will transform your heart. He's the one that will recreate your heart, that your life will be a reflection of the character of Christ. There's nothing that we do in and of ourselves. There's nothing that we can claim and call it a merit and say, this is how great I am. No, no, no. It's the, res it's the crucified Christ that transforms you and me. Keep the cross at the forefront of your minds every day. If you fall, it's okay. Keep the cross in your mind. When you're doing well, be humble and watch the and behold the Lamb that is crucified on the cross. And day by day, as we do that, and as we crucify ourselves with Christ, and as we are crucified to the world with Christ on a daily basis, we will see ourselves growing day by day. And not only, not only will we have been saved, or will we be continually be saved, we will find ourselves in the kingdom because the crucified Christ has paid the price for you and me. So keep him, keep the crucified Christ always in your mind, in the forefront of your minds. God bless you all. And, uh...